I'm Benjamin Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. And I'm Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare. You're listening to Rational Security on the ER podcast feed. For more of our columns and exclusive Lawfare content, read us at foreignpolicy.com. So you guys, I um, called my mortgage company and told them that I don't think they're living up to the spirit of our agreement. Yeah, and no so I'm kidding. renegotiating it. I'm decertifying my mortgage. Just stop paying. Yeah. I, I'm going to tell my you? health insurance that they're not living up to the spirit of our agreement. Yeah. I'm going to call my parents and kick it over to them and have them renegotiate it for me. That works, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a thing. Did you tell your mortgage company that it was the worst deal ever? Yes. Worst deal ever made? Surprisingly, they didn't agree. But... <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the decertified edition. I'm Shane Harris, luckiest reporter in Washington this morning because in addition to being here with my good friends Tamar Kaufman-Wittes and Susan Hennessy in the Jungle Studio, we are joined by the incomparable, my friend, Julia Yaffe. Hello. Hello, my friend. Hello. We can do a whole podcast like this. Hello. Good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Boris and Natasha show. (laughs) (laughs) Julia's going to give me accent lessons. Uh, Julia, as I'm pretty sure everyone who listens to the podcast knows, is uh, with The Atlantic, keen observer of all things Russia, foreign policy, Trump. Uh, She's the best, and we're very glad you're here. Hi. It's your first time in the jungle studio. It is. It's jungly. It is very jungly. I, I feel soothed yeah do you yeah. put you at ease we could get like a massage therapist in here there's we usually a aroma. fountain going we have to i mean this tiki drink is wonderful <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs> thank you <laughs> it is 9 like a.m but you know <laughs> um we, it's we, tiki we, o'clock somewhere <laughs> uh that would not be the first thing people have drank on this podcast including at 9 a.m we haven't had scotch in the morning in a while though it's true well we'll have but that is also another podcast i love Scotch in the morning? I'm kidding. That doesn't exist. <laughs> ben is not it's here, so we could podcast. raid his supply. We, we could. Without we, any consequence. We usually reserve the the morning drinking for a serious news break, though. And That's we don't true. have one this week. Yeah. yeah, by this point, we're all just numb. The, like, the <laughs> the serious, there higher, are right? serious news breaks like every day, but it's just like, meh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Too true. Well, we'll talk about some of them. There was a lot of news this week, but we're going to get to some of that on the podcast. And it's Wednesday. And it's only Wednesday. <laughs> hey, by the time you listen to this on Thursday. Uh, first up, we're going to talk about President Trump saying the, that Iran is not living up to the spirit of a deal to curtail its nuclear program. Russian troll farmers and propagandists speak out, and an American woman and her family are freed after five years in captivity in Afghanistan. Um, so let's first talk about President Trump's not unexpected move not to certify slash recertify that Iran is in compliance with the uh, the JPCOA. Um, JCPOA. JCPOA? Why did I say JPCOA? Yeah, I haven't had know. scotch yet this morning. I always say it wrong, too. Yeah. Too many letters. Popular, popular people's front of Judea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. yes. Iran is definitely not living up to the spirit of that. <laughs> let's, let's get real. Um, but, Tammy, just for practical purposes, let's just start with, the, let's start with the material fact. Is it the case that Iran is not living up to the deal, in fact? And does it matter if they're not living up to the spirit of the deal? Is that even at issue here? Is that even part of the terms? Well, it's there's also a question of what exactly is the spirit of a deal that's concluded with an adversary nation that we fundamentally don't trust and they fundamentally don't trust us. That's why, 
it was such a challenge to get these negotiations going. That's why it was such a challenge to come up with an agreement that uh, that all sides would sign on to. And of course, this isn't just a bilateral deal. It's um, the U.S., the EU, uh, and uh, Russia and China uh, and and. Britain and France and Germany. Um, That's the P5 plus one. Right. Yeah. The EU three plus so three. Is the P6. So, um, <laughs> so it, it was an incredibly complicated negotiation. The result is a very carefully balanced set of obligations um, with regard to sanctions relief on the one side and uh, inspections and verification and constraints on nuclear activities on the other side. And the IAEA, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has so far said that Iran is complying t- with the technical dimensions of the agreement. There have been a, a couple minor incidents that President Trump actually pointed to in his speech, but as he noted, they they have been corrected. Right. He didn't. He didn't try to say that they were in material breach of the contract of the agreement. Right. Right. And in fact, you know, even this administration, which has typically been very critical of international agencies like the IAEA, has praised the IAEA's uh, diligence and the role that it's played in verification. So there's no question about technical compliance. Um, But that's not what President Trump was saying. He was saying that uh, he can't certify to Congress that the sanctions relief the U.S. is obligated to under the deal is in our vital national interest. And so he's trying to make a broader strategic argument about the role that Iran is playing in the Middle East and in the world and its sponsorship of terrorism, its destabilization of other states in the region, its sponsorship of militias, its relationship with North Korea, and saying, you know, this isn't a good deal because Iran is a bad actor. Um The problem is that he didn't really outline anything, with one exception, to address those problematic aspects of Iranian behavior. There is no strategy that was laid out in the speech. He he basically said, I don't like this deal because I don't like Iran. So let's take the one thing that's working to constrain any aspect of Iran's behavior and and sabotage it. And Susan, comment on this too, but I mean... We knew all those things, right? I mean, none of this was this was all known about Iran, and I'm sure Barack Obama felt much the same way. And I mean, I'm curious too, as you coming at this from a lawyer. I mean, is, are the lawyers' heads just exploding over this? I mean, we entered into an agreement, and now we're sort of half in, half out. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in the past on sort of you know that that we are creating the conditions by which other countries are not going to want to enter into these kinds of deals in the future. Um, he has sort of split the baby by by saying it's non-compliant in the sort of the national security interest of the United States instead of saying you know they're just non-compliant. I mean, one of the interesting things about this the the way this has unfolded and obviously it wasn't predictable uh, at the time the deal was negotiated it was how sort of some of the um, particular features appear to be interacting with Trump's personality in a way that has sort of exacerbated the issue, right? So apparently he is really, really hostile to the notion of having to certify every 90 days. That it's he such views an imposition. This, uh, well, apparently he views it's it as a, a humiliation. But it's uh, that's also not surprising. I mean, he campaigned on this. It's one of the reasons he got the support of people like Bibi Netanyahu and you know, the kind of the right wing of American Jewry and the, you know, the the right wing of the Republican, the yeah, the right wing of the Republican Party. And in some ways, I mean, there's a really easy fix to this that has been talked about is just take away the need for him to recertify it every 90 days and the deal 
right. is still alive right. and extant. And right. there was this and he, great. And he doesn't. And he's not in this pl- because it's in some ways it's. I mean, there is the broader strategic aspect, but then there's also the minute um, political aspect of like him every ninety days having to put. It's not that it's an imposition, but it's politically not great for him for every 90 days to like show his voters that he's going back on a campaign Mm. promise. I think it's also a really good example of how, um, how when you use a process and law in a partisan manner, it can come back to bite you. So Congress passed this law in ARA, which requires the president to certify every 90 days because a Republican Congress wanted to constrain what they assumed would be a future Democratic president of the United States. They thought that they were making Hillary Clinton certify every 90 days. And it turns out that they've got a Republican president who hates the deal and this and this law on the books um, that was designed to constrain the executive and force the executive to interact with Congress. And so the Republican president basically turned to the Republican Congress and said, oh, you want this authority? You want to take it away from me? Fine. It's all yours. I'm dropping this hot potato in your lap. I mean, one of the interesting features here is also that um, his national security team so clearly opposed decertification, right? So you have sort of reports about McMaster working behind the scenes, Mattis, Dunford going on the record, basically saying, you know, we believe they're in compliance and we believe this deal should continue to go on. In fact, they said it's in our national interest, which is exactly contradicting the president. so it is, you know, it is notable the outcome here. This is um, one of, certainly not the first time, but um, one of the first times in sort of pure national security issues in which sort of Trump's own sensibilities have ultimately overcome his national security team's instincts. Um, they've been fundamentally unable to moderate him, right? There was sort of early attempts to try and root him in another direction. You know, apparently now McMaster is back channeling with Congress, helping them come up with how they might structural law that um, won't require this ongoing certification essentially to work around the president. Um, so this is just such a, a a strange but also, I think, revealing uh, episode about really the limits of those kinds of grownups in the room, their ability to overcome his very, very strong instincts, especially on issues that, as Julia mentioned, get to sort of his campaign promise, his personal sense of humiliation. Also just, I mean, this falls right into sort of the wanting to undo all of Obama's accomplishments, right? It's uh, the way he talks about this is not all that different from the, from the way he talks about the Obamacare, right? Like it's sort <laughs> and of- the tactic is the same tactic, throw it to Congress and yeah. threaten them that if you don't do what I want, I'm going to kill this thing. Right. And, and it's a bad deal. And I can get a better deal without articulating what exactly his vision of that better deal is or how exactly he intends to reach it. Well, this is I mean, if there's anything left of the, you know, surra- he's he'll surround himself with good people. Uh, narrative. Theory, yeah. Narrative or, you know, h- grasping at straws theory. Um, you know, you heard this a lot from. From people trying to, you know, put lipstick on a on a pig in Washington after after Trump's election, that well, he'll surround himself with good people, and look, he has surrounded himself with good people: H.R. McMaster, Jim Mattis, um, Kelly. He surrounded himself with good people, and it's and he has. He just periodically pulls the rug out mm-hmm. from under them, and then. 
throws the rug over their heads and like punches them in the kidneys a few times <laughs> on national that's, TV. That's so know? gangsta. You know, the, the thing is, there are two national security officials um, in the mix that I think are, have a very different view of Iran. Uh, and we're pushing for decertification. And that's Nikki Haley, the ambassador to the UN, and Mike Pompeo. Uh, and, you know, there is rumors going around Washington now that if Tillerson leaves as secretary of state, Pompeo might be moved into that slot. Um, but I do think it's worth noting the role of those two. Pompeo in particular mm-hmm. is really hard over Very on hostile. Iran. Always, and has been since the beginning. Yeah. Right. And reportedly set up this unit in CIA to be the sort of Iran targeting kind Iran of operation. center. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and there, you know, there was one interesting little note in Trump's speech last week about Iran and North Korea. He said, there are also many people who believe that Iran is dealing with North Korea, which is like, duh. Okay, <laughs> they've been dealing with North Korea for years. I am going to instruct our intelligence agencies to do a thorough analysis and report back their findings beyond what they have already reviewed. Which just sounds like, okay, are we back in 2003 again? I mean, yeah, totally. echoes I of that. Not, not axis, to prejudge the actually, outcome here. I heard there's an axis. <laughs> it's a bad one. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's the evil. No, I heard it's the not good axis. <laughs> not the good bad axis. ombre. I mean, the other sort of um, feature of, of his announcement was designating the uh, IRGC as, uh, you know, for OFAC sanctions. This is, um, this gets to sort of one of my like I don't know pet issues which is um this really astounding article that came out in the New Yorker a series of months ago by Adam Davidson it's called I believe Trump's worst deal um and it's about a sort of a negotiation uh, for building a Trump hotel in Azerbaijan in which there is really mountains and mountains of evidence that this the financing here is connected to the Iranian revolutionary it's like guard laundered money from them right? it, it includes um a substantial amount of personal involvement from one Ivanka Trump. Um, it was never clear to me why that wasn't, uh, one, the trigger for a serious federal investigation or whether or not it was uh, the trigger for an investigation into things like FCPA violations. I mean, sort of any competent prosecutor could have read through that article and like literally put some red flags right on the paper there of like, Thanks, whoa, this is, like, this is a lot. Um, so one, uh, was an investigation under, ever undertaken? And two, you know, to the extent that it never uh, really sort of took hold in, in the public conversation, even though this there really is a series of quite serious, you know, not quite allegations, but um, notes of incredibly suspicious behavior on the part of senior White House officials, that that never became part of the public conversation. Um, I'm a little bit mystified that once again, there's sort of an opportunity where Trump is talking about um, the particular perils of, of interacting with these groups and, and taking steps to be much firmer, that that hasn't been a trigger to reopen the conversation about his own family's business dealings, you know, potentially with sanctioned individuals. Well, all that stuff is complicated and, you ha- and it's full of financial terms and financial disclosures and people's eyes gloss over and 140 characters are a lot easier to understand. The other thing is, I mean, the argument Trump is making is not exactly new. It's in some ways right out of the APEC playbook. You know, Iran's a bad actor. It's a bad hombre. And it sponsors all other kinds of bad hombres in the Middle East that pose an an existential threat to Israel. So and and in some ways, the Obama administration didn't um, they kind of punted on that. Right. But they didn't foreclose the 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 opportunity to go after Iran's sponsorship of Hezbollah, et cetera, the, the IRGC. Um, 
So he's not making a, a new or particularly inflammatory argument. It's just that he's binding it like people on the right to the Iran deal as opposed to being like, okay, we constrain them on this. Let's leave that over here and then try a different route. Right. And to me, that's what really um, lays bare the fact that this what he calls a strategy is a non-strategy. It is a it is a domestically it's a rant. It's a focused rant. political tactic, which is I promised I would tear up the Iran nuclear deal. And so I'm this is what I'm doing about it. Because, you know, the Obama administration, you can argue with their strategy, but their strategy was there's a range of bad behavior. Let's put what we can in a box because Iran with a nuclear weapon would also be a more dangerous sponsor of terror, a more dangerous ally of Hezbollah, et cetera, et cetera. So all the other problems get worse if Iran goes nuclear. Let's deal with that first, and then we can tackle the other stuff. Critics of the Obama administration say that for the sake of a nuclear agreement, the administration looked the other way with a lot of bad behavior in the Middle East over the the last years of of Obama's term. So, you know, you can argue with it, but at least it was a strategy and and we don't have that here. I think we're going to be talking in future shows on how this impinges on our ability if there is one to get a deal with North Korea. Mm-hmm. So more to come on this. Um all right, let's move on to our next topic. Uh so a fascinating series of stories, revelations in recent days and weeks. Uh, about what goes on inside troll factories, troll farms, bot farms uh, that may have played a role or that that intelligence officials think did play a role in interfering in the U.S. elections. Um, the first thing that popped up on my radar this week is there's, there's – um, uh, this great website, if you haven't checked it out, Medusa, right? It's, like, it's really it's Russian journalists who are writing in English, right? No, it's a it's a independent Russian journalists who basically went into Latvia so that they could be under EU law to pr- protect themselves from the Russian government. That's basically the only option they had left, and run a news service out of out of Riga in Russian, but they also have an English language site, and they have a fantastic uh, morning newsletter called The Real Russia Today, cool. and um, you should sign up for yeah, it. Yeah, well, they it's had really a story good. this week. It was basically a translation summary of something that ran on the independent news, Russian news network, Dozd, am I saying Dost? right? Dozd. Ra- it's TV Rain. Mm-hmm. Wait, say that one more time. Dozd. Oh, wow. Dozd. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Your, your Russian's getting really <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Boris, fantastic. Very good. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and basically, it was summarizing this interview with somebody who, uh, who calls him, so, who the uh, publication called Maxim, uh, who... Um, Worked inside the Internet Research Agency, which, of course, is the group that uh, now uh, has been shown that uh, bought ads on Facebook and has been sort of become the central focus in Congress in the past couple of weeks of Russian activity uh, around the election and the buying of ads and fake news stories and that propagation. Um, and what I found really fascinating about this, and Julie, I want to kind of get your take just to start on this, is for a long time now, really, I would say they're part of a year or so since we've been trying to unpack what exactly the Russians did. <clears throat> I know among journalists, there's always been this question about people we talk to of, did the Russians have someone helping them and explaining American politics to them? And, you know, because we think that, oh, they all watch House of Cards and think that these conspiracies are all how we run. And what this really makes out is that there's this whole unit within the IRA that's like, no, we're just reading social media and understanding what it is. They did also watch House of Cards. (laughs) Right. They did also do that. (laughs) Which is not surprising because that show was extremely popular among the kind of – 
the Russian elite in this, like the upper middle class Russian elite. It was kind of like must see TV and people would wait for it more. My friends in Moscow waited for the House of Cards releases more wow. than people. In and there was wow. a Putin character. I mean, yeah, he was yeah, literally yeah. called were, yeah. Dmitry Pe or something Peskov. I've actually never seen something. I don't, yeah. I don't remember. But, but it was... Um, yeah. So it's but, like but, Dallas but, was in the eighties. It's like what Russians think America is actually. No, they think like. it's real. They wow. think it's real. And 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 to me, and hearing that they the trolls were forced to watch this, first encouraged, then required to watch this, was like, duh. But also, like they were. What I thought. What I thought. These are this account. And there's been an account from somebody now who's come forward from Sputnik News, and and what we're hearing more is that no, it's not that they necessarily had American interpreters for them. It's just that they. They watch social media and they understand what sets people off, right? I mean, it's much more straightforward than well, I think we're... Yeah, it's that... That's the thing. If you talk to people who worked on Russia during the Cold War, they talk about how Russia would plant, you know, fake news stories or their kind of memes, things like the idea of a nuclear winter in, for example, Indian newspapers and hope that Americans would pick them up and then it would you know, wind its way into the American press here because of the technology we have, you can just plug right in. And the thing about shows like House of Cards is, again, like, what was what I found interesting about that article, uh, or that interview on Dorst, and then there was also, um, Medusa has a good summary of this as well, a really fascinating investigation in RBC, which is the kind of business publication in Moscow about the kind of the the um, the details the ins and outs of this of uh how the trolls worked mm -hmm. and what i find interesting is that the people who were manning who were the trolls who were working here were people who um were studying journalism who were studying international relations mm -hmm. people who were studying uh philology that is linguistics and languages so these are kind of the the at you know the the top university in St. Petersburg, so these these are kind of the the people that we in the West look to, and we hope that they would be the kind of the anti-Putin elite, and or they're highly bridged to us, right? or bridged to us exactly. They're the highly educated kind of globalized Russian elite who often speak English really well, having never been to an Anglophone country because they watch a lot of our shows, because they read a lot of what we put out, a lot of our cultural products. So they're not exactly strangers to our culture. Mm. And so, for example, when friends from Moscow who are kind of from that same socioeconomic slice of Russia, when they come to visit me in the States or you show them New York or California, they're kind of just like yawn because they've seen it all on TV. And it's just like, you know, like going to, and seeing the Eiffel Tower, or the Mona Lisa after you've seen a mm -hmm. gazillion reproductions of it. So um, that's that's it's interesting. And also the, the other thing that's interesting to me is that for a long time, basically for almost a year, like Shane said, we've been the investigation into Russia has been mostly centered around Trump and how quickly we can get Trump out of the Oval Office. And most of the leaks and the information has been coming from the states. In in Russia, both the domestic journalists and the foreign journalists working there were really incredulous for a really long time that Russia was capable of doing anything like this. And so we had a lot of guesswork coming from Washington and New York that was really absurd and it was from people who had no idea about Russia, who have never been there, don't understand the place, and their interpretations and theories were really weird. Finally, 
You have the local press, which is, has been decimated by Putin for 20 years. Finally, we have them stepping up and investigating and using their you know, domestic connections. And we finally get some kind of insight and some kind of detail and some kind of texture on how this worked. And it's not focused on Trump, which is, I think, really important because it is ultimately a national security issue. Trump is here. He's been elected. He's going to be here for at least another three and a half years. And we need to understand that, that yeah. and not believe that the next New York Times scoop or Wall Street Journal scoop is going to get him to resign. We have to think about what Russia did, what capabilities they have, how they're you know, fine-tuning them in the wake of what they did and were, were able to do in 2016 for the upcoming midterm elections, for the 2020 presidential elections. And this, I think, is a huge step forward in our understanding of what happened. So I think one of like the in, the interesting steps that we see the government taking on sort of towards that end. So, you know, sort of what is uh, Russian information operations look like much more broadly, sort of separate and apart from the question of Trump and collusion. And that's the report that RT has now been asked to register under FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Um, this got like a little bit of attention at the time. Um, it's actually, it's it's highly unusual. Um, FARA actually expressly excludes, um, they say that an agent of a foreign principal um, doesn't include any news or press services or organizations. So that means means that um, whatever information that DOJ presented to RT um, probably fell along the lines of, we do not believe you qualify essentially as a press organization. Um, this... And it didn't get sort of much more much more pickup beyond that. Um, this strikes me as sort of a potentially a fraught path to walk down um, because, okay, um, right, so this is only related to sort of RT's, uh, you know, arm within the United States. Um, there's been a number of people who sort of written about it's about time. You know, clearly there are very, very strong ties to the Russian government. Um, there are there are strong arguments that they fall within sort of the the scope of control that we might think of whenever we think about traditionally being an, the agent of a foreign principal. Um, certainly they are aiming at uh, influencing the U.S. political discourse. And yet, um, sort of notwithstanding all that, this seems like maybe not the best idea, um, either because it's starting to walk down a path within the United States in which we are starting to attempt to chill in particular ways certain types of speech. Now, FARA doesn't prevent anybody from operating. What it requires is a series of registration requirements and disclosures. So it's sort of it's it's not quite there, but it's it's starting. Um, we have seen a number of journalists quit from RT sort of in the meantime. Um, so sort of for questions about what it means for our own press and then also sort of for retaliation purposes. Right. What is um, we've heard Russia talk a lot about, you know, the voice of America and you know, these various sort of funding that's occurring of English language products in in Russia and other countries. So I, I don't I haven't sort of fully formed my my conclusion there. Um, but it does seem like there's a little bit of hints of the executive branch being focused on those long term issues that you're, you've been talking about, Julia. And also eh, maybe a little bit of hints that we're potentially not going about this in, in a sufficiently careful way. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you raised that, um, Susan, because I, I personally, as somebody who works on democracy and human rights issues, I found that angle of the response a little bit discomforting. Um, the U.S. government has spent the last 10 years or so pushing back against other governments who are seeking to constrain societal openness and the range of debate and the range of information and the ability of 
our civil society to engage with civil society in other countries. Russia has been a leader in that regard, but they're hardly the only ones. And it's not only non-democratic states that have been moving down this road. India um, severely constrained uh, foreign funding of local civil society. Uh, we've had tangles with the Israelis over a law on NGO funding that um, that politicians on the right there want to use to cut off European funding for human rights groups that criticize the Israeli military. Um, but we have said, you know, that's not the same thing as our FARA. Uh, it's not, you know, that that requiring people to register and taking away tax benefits if they have certain kinds of funding is, in effect, constraining freedom of association. That's exactly the argument we've been making to other countries. And so to see our own government sort of slide down this way of using FARA really makes me uncomfortable. I also think that there's a broader kind of philosophical problem with this that goes to the crisis of confidence we are having in the United States about our democracy, about the openness of our society, which is that, look, propaganda has always been there. It has new platforms. It has new tools. It has new targeting capabilities. All of that can make it more effective in achieving its goals. But at the end of the day, you know, if RT is a Russian government entity and it's pushing out propaganda, we know that. And, and we've dealt with that before. And our answer to that in the past has always been, we have an open society full of open information and we combat propaganda with good information. And the more open we are, the less impact that propaganda will have. All of a sudden, we're not feeling secure in that approach anymore. And we're feeling like we have to, we have to um, blacklist certain kinds of information. And I, to me, that's a signal of our own insecurity. I have to say, I, I agree with you guys. It is a totally, totally stupid, short-sighted, boneheaded decision. First of all, because it's not effective because, okay, they register under FARA as a foreign agent, but it's not that people reading them necessarily know. It's not like they have to label all of their material saying, you know, this content is sponsored by Right, they don't have to say that. There's Putin's no just face appears like the NBCP <laughs> Right, it's a <clears throat> it's a pop up. Right, so th they don't know. It's just this this blacklisting that opens us up to retaliation um, against things like Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty and the slippery slope. Who do we sure, blacklist sure. next? Sure, exactly. But then the other thing is that a lot of people, the stuff that comes out on RT people don't see or read directly on RT. It's laundered through social media, through alt-right or um, far-right sites. So even if we, even if their content is labeled as, um, as foreign-sponsored propaganda, by the time you read it on InfoWars, you don't see that warning right. anymore and you don't know where the story came from. So it's totally pointless and it opens us up to retaliation and it's against our principles. I, you know, for a long time, it, again, like you said, this problem isn't new. The Obama administration uh, was very conscious of it and very consciously did not retaliate against them because whenever we even make motions in that uh, direction, the Russians immediately retaliate against foreign journalists. In Russia. The other thing is that, and this goes back to Shane's opening point about how the Russians could know and have the sophisticated knowledge of our political system and our culture. 
A lot of most of the people who work at RT in the U.S. are Americans, and a lot of the people who work at RT in Moscow are Americans and Brits, and they are people that have been kind of scooped up from middling journalism schools in the U.K. and the U.S., especially when they were graduating into a recession both in the U and a crisis in journalism, were given fantastic salaries and told to pursue their craziest dreams. A lot of them are, uh, you know, they they truly believe in like a leftist cause or a rightist cause, and and the and Russia just kind of saddles them with this. Um, and that also came out in the investigation that uh, Medusa translated that a lot of this was staffed by Americans. Mm-hmm. So. And guess who knows about America? Americans know about America. The same way that Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty is staffed in, in Moscow, is staffed by Russians who are our Sherpas into that culture and what's important there. And they also make that information more um, easily absorbed yeah, by the society. Yeah. And, yeah. and like just to sort of a little bit play the devil's advocate mm. point, even though I, I largely, if not entirely, agree with both of the points you made, Um this sort of this notion that, you know, the best counter for bad ideas are good ideas and sort of this openness, that clearly isn't working or hasn't worked in sort of in, but, in the recent past because we have a crisis of civics education, a crisis of media literacy. I mean, really. And we have a president. I'm sorry. We have a president who for two years now has been um, undermining f- for longer, uh, undermining faith in the in the media and in the very idea of facts and objectivity, but he and, and he the was first to do that. Right, I was and, about I was about to yeah. say so. So he is, you know, kind of picking up the baton from uh, the dearly departed Roger Ailes and the wonderful Fox News, who you know under the under the aegis of fair and balance have been working to undermine the very idea of truth, right? And so where we are, did, and this gets to a larger point of what the Russians did. The Russians kind of put a pinky on the scale in 2016. We did all the work for them. And so it's not the Russians, it's not because of what the Russians did that uh, we had a a new poll out this morning that showed that 46% of the American population believes that the media makes up stories about Trump. That's not the Russians' work. That's that's, uh, our commander-in-chief. That's Fox News, Breitbart, and all these indigenous American as American as apple pie groups working assiduously to undermine what we do every day. I mean, my fear is that whenever you look at sort of what what are the real problems, right? Those sort of those those core corrosive elements, things of of you know lack of education and and sort of factualization and fragmentation and and sort of the polarization of political parties. The um the solutions to those sorts of problems, it's. It's so massive. It goes to sort of the, the structure of the United States. I mean, yeah. massive amounts of funding and education. And, and I think that, you know, the idea that con- that any Congress, let alone this Congress or, or this government, is going to sort of take that on with the depth and sort of the enormity of the problem, it's, it's impossible to believe that they would do that. And so we're going to continue to see kind of superficial things. They're going to say, okay, well, we can we can grab hold here. We can regulate Facebook's, you know, election ads and we can have RT register for fair and we're going to see all these sort of little surface solutions without having anybody focus on, right, what is the, what is the core underlying issue here? Well, I also think that the core underlying issues can't be addressed primarily top-down through government policy. It's stuff that 
that goes to culture and society and and the expectations that we have of ourselves and our institutions, governmental and non-governmental. And so I think what we actually need is Americans to be pissed off enough about the Russian role or about our situation to to shift their expectations of Facebook, of political leaders, of journalists, etc. But all of that is such a daunting prospect that I think it's time we pull out the scotch. <laughs> but I think it's uh, just one, one last point. I think it's significant and really v- very, very good that we have spent the bulk of this segment talking about America and domestic problems which is something that the Russians recognized. You know, they were given instructions, according to Maxim, the, you know, the troll in the troll factory, not to talk about Russia, not to talk about Putin, to talk about guns, to talk about gays, talk about religion, uh, to talk about Hillary Clinton and her wealth, and aren't you sick of the dynasty of the Clintons? Um, They focused on American issues, and I think it would be, I think it's incumbent upon us to think about the role that our society played in uh, making it so easy for the Russians to, I mean, that we created such big flames that they didn't really have to fan all that much. Right. Right. Fertile territory. Um, Okay. Let's talk briefly here at the end about, um, I think, a piece of good news, (laughs) Uh, very good news, long awaited, which is that uh, Caitlin Coleman, an American woman and her Canadian husband, Josh Boyle, who were held with the Haqqani Network in Afghanistan, have been freed after five years in captivity, along with uh, three of their children, all born in captivity. We had known that Caitlin Coleman was pregnant when she and her husband, um, while uh, backpacking in Afghanistan, which, coded that one for just a second, um, uh, were uh, taken. She was pregnant. She gave birth to one child in captivity. Josh Boyle is now saying that they had another child who the Haqqani Network murdered uh, when she was an infant. Um, There's a ton that's going to come out more about this story. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, for those of us, I think, who covered these families and who were in touch with their families over the years and were always really careful about how we reported on these stories because you would hear things that the family and the government didn't want out because they thought it could jeopardize their safety. It's this huge amount of relief, but now it inspires just this flood of questions from what was it like living for five years as a captive of this so criminal organization giving birth and it, to children in yeah. it? Uh, and also, I mean, I think that goes back to questions of what the hell were you doing backpacking in <laughs> oh, Afghanistan yes. in 2012? And I, I'm confident that the Coleman family go, is going to have a lot to say about in that. Afghanistan? You know, I stopped after like 2011. <laughs> okay, really but tired. can I just say like, you know, Rory Stewart can go backpacking across Afghanistan for months and write a best-selling book about it and become a member of parliament in the UK, and that's fine. And this couple goes backpacking in Afghanistan and get captured for 5 years and we're all blaming them. But Right. You know, there, yeah, exactly. No, 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 but a, he also a, took that's a, a very good point. We like I mean. people who don't get caught, Tammy. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. That's right. a very good point. We should not be blaming them for being Capture, but it does raise no, the question. No, we didn't blame. No, no. There was no blame. The it question was is like, like, why were they there? And what yeah. was this? A there small, are a lot of know, unanswered questions. Yeah, the Coleman this. family I know in particular is want some answers from their son-in-law as to why they took his pregnant and wife. That, and that is, that, yeah, yeah. that is fair. That is fair. But you know, Rory Stewart, as far as I know, was not pregnant while he was backpacking <laughs> through right. Afghanistan. 
But um, besides from just being just this incredibly, you know, harrowing story, and we'll hear a lot more about it, I'm, I'm confident. I mean, this does underscore the fact that there are at least two Americans still held by the Haqqani Network. Austin Tice is believed to still be held in Syria. You know, this this the, the plight of these people is not over, even though every time somebody gets to come home, it makes the problem, I suppose, a little bit less, you know, severe. But still, it is a, it is an issue. And I guess one big question I had is, and it's hard for me to answer this until we know more about the circumstances of the rescue, which are still in dispute. Is this a sign that the Trump administration is doing something differently than what the Obama administration did? I think from the early reporting we've done at the Journal, you have to give credit to efforts that began, particularly in the State Department, at the FBI as well, under the Obama administration. It seems like those did pay some dividends, but did something new happen here? And does this also create a certain uh, impetus that now President Trump has to try and do more to get these other people home? I mean, this is actually something I think we talked about on the show, like right whenever Trump was first elected, yeah, um, which is, right. you know, look, he he has really different instincts than other presidents. And actually, this is possibly an area in which he might do some good, right? Those instincts might be sort of put to uh, to good use, especially as he gets um, the praise and, and sort of optics of, you know, the foreign or the, the you know, the, the returning U.S. citizens and sort of the fanfare. Um, I, I think the timing is a little bit uh, odd and potentially unfortunate for his media cycle in that um, uh, because because the Iran, Iran deal stuff was happening at the precise same time, uh, a number of uh, individuals, in, including Jason Rezaian and others who are sort of focused on uh, Iranian hostages, have noted that actually what Trump, the moves that Trump has been making on uh, the Iran deal and decertification looks an awful lot like abandoning American hostages in Iran. Well, and he gave that entire speech without even even mentioning the Namazis, um, father and son imprisoned in Iran. So of all Iran's bad behavior, there are also Americans mm -hmm. essentially being held hostage in Iranian prisons, and he didn't even talk about them. Right. So I think that, right, so it, it's sort of like it's the good and the bad. They're, they're coming home. We don't have many answers here, but also on the more obvious symbols that he's like going to get tough on the hostage policy stuff, he, he really has not been sort of offering the, the and, and also signs. I and also Jason resigned and his wife were released I believe in part because as part of this as like a small ancillary to the Iran deal although the Obama administration yeah. denied that right. sure but they definitely but did they, they were, definitely look, did. parallel I, I tracks the, of negotiation I think this <laughs> totally unrelated <laughs> the state held the prisoners idea. like Iranian held prisoners I think are a different kind of cha policy challenge because we've seen the Iranians use these individuals as bargaining chips in international negotiations. We've seen them, you know, respond to just ransom, like when the Omanis paid them off to return the hikers that were captured on the Iraq-Iran border. Um, you know, but I, I think the challenge with these other hostages like the Coleman's, like Austin Tice, is that it's a lot murkier who actually has control over the hostage at any given point. What really they want? Are they trading them for prisoners that are held by Pakistan or by, you know, Assad? Or is it about the money? And how do we even establish contact with people who are truly authoritative? It's just a much harder problem than people who are being held by a national government. That's the first thing. But the other thing is, you know, the, the Obama administration did ultimately under public pressure appoint somebody who was designated like the hostage czar. Um, and I don't think that the Trump administration has 
put somebody into that role. No, so it's always a safe still, guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I'm not positive, <laughs> but I think there's not a That chair one. is still empty. Yeah. So, you know, there. it's an interesting question. Who is do, Who's handling this portfolio in the Trump administration? And if they are more focused on it or having more success, what is it that they're doing differently? Yeah. Shane, can I ask some like crazy Fox News style questions? You bet. Um, so there is like a lot, specifically to the Coleman story, there's a lot of weird backstory elements, all of which could be sort of coincidental, but in that sort of bucket of unanswered questions, including the fact that, you know, Joshua Boyle was formerly married to a woman who was the uh, the sibling of a Guantanamo detainee, a, a Canadian detainee, um, that Boyle sort of refused to return back to the United States because he was concerned about what activity the U.S. might take against him. What is that? Like, is is something going on? Is this yeah. just like you, your mental state after five? There's a weird coincidence in your mental state after five years in captivity is maybe not entirely rational. Like, what are we to make of that very strange thread overlaid with the even the family has has raised questions themselves about what exactly they were doing in Afghanistan? They partic- they'd said specifically they were not going to be going to Afghanistan. Like, what is all that? Yeah, we pursued that question, too, in the first couple of days after they were freed. And our understanding was that Caitlin Coleman herself was also afraid to get on this plane out of Pakistan to ferry them back to North America because um, uh, of this concern about her husband's previous involvement with this other family. Um, Everybody we talked to that day was really stressing this point that, like, no, 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 no. Maybe there's been a misunderstanding. That issue has been settled. And it's still not entirely clear how and when that was settled. But they clearly needed some assurances. And I believe that the Justice Department did or was planning the day they left home to put out a statement essentially saying, you don't face any legal jeopardy if you come back. Um, but clearly this was something that in the in the five years that they were held, and maybe even before, believe posed some jeopardy to them. When I talked to a U.S. official about this, uh, I, I said, you know, what do you make of this? And this person said, look, um, five years in captivity, they've been told a lot of propaganda. They've been told a lot of things. And this person strongly implied, I think, that the Haqqani network may have been saying to them, you know, if you go back, you're just going to be thrown in jail again. And really, when said, basically, the, you know, the answer was when they get home, this person said, we will provide them with all of the psychological counseling that they need. And it's safe for them to come back. So when that's I'm- that's so I mean, going back to one of your questions of what it was like, there was um, a report on NPR where they talked to a report, uh, a journalist who has spent a lot of time with this family and has spent a lot of time with them since their return. And one of the things she said just really stuck with me that these kids who were born in captivity and have never known anything but, you know, whatever space they were held in by the Haqqani network, that one of the sons is just constantly flushing the toilet. He has never seen a flushing toilet, and he's just, like, obsessively flushing the toilet because it's just, he's just awestruck by it. Wow. Wow. Which is, I mean, gives you a sense of, I think we tend to think of things in in these kind of Hollywood Moments like, okay, they come home, credits roll, and everybody walks out of the dark theater, but they're going to be, I mean, these kids are going to be messed up for a long time, and the parents are going to, I mean, there's a long psychological recovery ahead for these people. 
Yeah. I mean, one of the most um, lighter but sort of startling headlines was um, Joshua Boyle saying that whenever he was informed that Donald Trump was president of the United yeah. States, he just assumed they were lying to him. Yeah. Like, Gosh, like they are. And the amazing thing is that this, was rational. Right, but even the parents are returning to actually a, a world that is fundamentally altered in ways that, you know, as, as shocking as this past year has been to all of our systems, we also had sort of the buildup we've been on this journey slowly um the psychology of returning to the united states and canada at this moment is just it's almost unfathomable well, on the other hand like. justin trudeau is prime minister of canada it all balances out it's a whole new world but shane so we do you have a sense of um Who's who's still left behind in in the Afghanistan Pakistan arena in Syria elsewhere? Right. So there's two American two Americans who are held, um, believed to be held by the Haqqani network. I think one is a professor, the other uh, is an independent writer. Um, I don't know of any new status updates on them, including on the the the, the writer, a man named Paul Overby who just kind of disappeared. And I, in my reporting, no one's been able to find out what exactly happened to him. You know, Austin Tice is still believed to be held in Syria. And, I mean, you frequently hear talk that there might be a you know, release imminent at that soon. John Cornyn has been really pushing his cause mm -hmm. and, and repeatedly affirms that the U.S. intelligence community believes Tice is still alive. He's still alive. And I think believes me, they, they consensus, well, I don't know if it's a consensus, but the strong beliefs that he's held by uh, Syrian government forces. Um, and then, of course, Tammy, you mentioned the people in Iran. Um, it is not, I, th I think, the levels that it was particularly when the American hostages being killed by ISIS were in captivity. But yeah, I mean, these people are still out there. And, what, and, what, and as what frequently happens in these cases is that you know, they, they fade from the headlines. Sometimes the family prefers that. Sometimes the family really wishes that wouldn't happen. Um, there's always no activity going on behind the scenes. It's frequently hard to get a gauge of like how sustained that is or whether it's making progress, which is part of what makes reporting on these issues so incredibly frustrating is because, you know, the, the end result that you're looking for is that dramatic moment when they're freed. And sometimes we don't know the little baby steps that maybe are paying off into something. But um, but yeah, I mean, for in terms of the Americans who are still held, at least some of them, uh, it's a very big question mark to me on what their status actually is. So. Wow. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Julia. You have an object. You are an object soon again. I am an object in my object lesson. Um, so Thursday night, I'm going to be on a panel here at Brookings f for a screening of a fantastic, fantastic documentary called Icarus that is on Netflix, and I recommend everybody watch it. It's basically about a guy who tries to, who's a avid cyclist, amateur cyclist, who decides that He's convinced that everybody's doping and um, that they're just getting away with it. So he wants to try to show how you can dope and get away with it. And um, in doing this, he hooks up with a rush, the head, the director of the anti Russian anti-doping lab in Moscow, who starts coaching him on how to dope and how to evade detection. And they That's the doping kind of anti-doping <laughs> guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anti-doping. <laughs> and then it turns out it, it kind of, it, the film kind of, I think the reporting project there went off the rails and it becomes a much more interesting film because who wants to, sorry, watch a film about cycling. Um, 
but he. <laughs> sorry, no offense. No recycling list. Not that there's Julia. anything wrong with that. <laughs> uh, but it becomes about how the systematic way in which the Russian government sponsored and oversaw doping efforts, massive across the board doping in the Olympics. How it's obsessed with these status symbols like the Olympics and the World Cup and performance indicators like medals. And to me, watching this movie or this documentary, I have been a skeptic about all of this, uh, a lot of the hysteria around Russian meddling that is like, okay, let's just wait till we have the facts. Let's, let's, um, let's not get carried away. Or the Russians are kind of too stupid to have done any, anything this sophisticated. And then you see how sophisticated their doping efforts are. And you're like, okay, let's wait for the whistleblower. Because, <laughs> but, I mean, and, and, and going back to our earlier discussion, we're finally starting to see a little bit of that come out in Russia, which is, of course, as, as you'll see, is very dangerous uh, for Russians to do, which is why it happens so rarely, That why that ship doesn't leak as much as the American ship. Mm. So... Highly recommend watching it. It's called Icarus. It's on Netflix. It's fantastic. Great. Tomorrow. We have talked several times on the podcast about uh, North Korea's repeated threatening of the island of Guam. Uh, and I am fortunate enough to have a friend from Guam who was back home recently and brought me this treasured Ooh, coffee nice. mug, which she says is the essential <clears throat> Guamian accoutrement. It says... <laughs> I love Guam, but more than that. I heart Guam. Yeah, I love it. I heart Guam. Don't you? Um, And then on the inside, it says, where America's day begins, which is pretty cool. I don't know if you remember back with the whole Y2K thing where um, the richest of the rich were trying to go to Pacific Islands like Guam so that they could be among the first to experience the new millennium. Wow. Do you remember this? Wow. So Guam has um, two things. It has U.S. military bases and a tourism industry (laughs) and and a booming mug business. And a booming mug business. So I am very, very proud of my I Love Guam mug. And uh, let's hope that the North Koreans would prefer to have a mug like this. They can also, you know, once the nuclear blast turns all the sand into something like a mug, uh, you can say, you know, where America's thermonuclear war begins. Oh, no. <laughs> Dark humor. Da, da, da. Oh. I did see a, a hilarious video of um, people in Guam had made like a like a Kim Jong-un uh, tourism specific video of like, come visit Guam. You'll see. You'll love it. Like it's, uh, <laughs> this is. What, this is really you need just to go on vacation and see the wonderful tourism yeah industry. and then you'll never threaten and us again you will stop threatening <laughs> us oh, wow um all right i too actually have uh, a netflix <laughs> event but as my object lesson uh this is actually a new series that premiered last friday called mind hunter you guys have heard about this? It's, I know, that um, sounds so sci-fi. It's, yeah, it's created by this playwright, Joe Penhall. David Fincher is involved in it. And it's based on the book, Mindhunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit by John Douglas and Mark Olshocker. Um, and <clears throat> basically, it's the beginning of criminal profiling in the use of finding serial killers. In fact, they're f- referring to them as sequence killers in the, in, the, in the show because they haven't invented the term serial killer yet. Um, Jonathan Groff, who's terrific, is in the lead, and he plays this, uh, you know, 
kind of very um, button-down FBI agent, but who also has these radical ideas about psychology and how we can learn from interviewing killers. And so it has a very kind of Silence of the Lambs quality to it, but it's in the period for the FBI when this was all completely new, and they were apparently literally having to do this work like on weekends and sneak it into other things that they were already doing for the Bureau, like, um, <clears throat> you know, um, some psychological work, but the idea of interviewing killers was seen as sort of maudlin and excessive and what the hell are we going to learn from these sickos so super interesting i think especially our fbi listeners uh out there will think it's really good and i have one other thing too wait can i just say it's yeah. also becoming popular in russia are you hunter. serious yeah they We've love got Netflix. to stop so- tipping our hand by showing them <laughs> so this stop is the thing like takes place in the 70s the thing is, they love these shows oh they don't produce God. anything as good and the thing is that so like in that interview where the guy talks about how they use vpns to um access all these american sites so that people can't tell that they're sitting in russia and commenting it's also how a lot of people like non-trolls at Watch, watch Netflix. Watch Netflix in Russia. <laughs> wow. Awesome. And I have one last thing here. This is an object for someone here. Oh. A little bottle of bubbly because somebody has a birthday today. Oh it's today? It's today. Happy, happy birthday. birthday. That's my birthday voice. <clears throat> and happy birthday <clears throat> to our oh, incomparable. Yes. And you producer. share a birthday with Jen Patia, our fabulous editor thank and producer. You. Um, who, if she were here, we would also give her a bottle of bubbly. So next Let's time we see she her. She deserves a case of <laughs> She bubbly. deserves a case of that stuff. Um, Thank you, Shane. You're I, welcome. Happy I could birthday. drink a case Oh yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Aw. Little Joni Mitchell reference yeah, there. Yeah, thanks. I like a little Joni Mitchell in the morning. <laughs> uh, but sadly, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, when you do download the podcast on iTunes or your favorite, actually it's Apple now. I keep calling it iTunes. It'll always be iTunes to me or Stitcher or your favorite podcaster. Please remember to leave a rating and a review. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. Of course, our show editor and producer is Jen Patia. Our music is performed this week by Donald Trump and the not good access of otherwise very good people. <laughs> I love it. No, no, no. That's so- like a 70s concept band. Isn't that good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sophia Yan, who actually provides our music, would definitely, definitely be into that. On behalf of my good friends Susan Hennessy, Tamar Kaufmas, and Julia Yaffe, thanks again for being here. Thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.